Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. There is no room for a bad hair day when it comes to actors on a film set. Tracy Moss is an Atlanta-based hairstylist who works in film and TV. She'll tell us about this serious component of the art director's vision and share some fun stories about famous actors whose hair she has styled. First, a Christmas film made in Atlanta. We're approaching the time when many children eagerly look to the night skies in hopes of seeing Santa in his sleigh in 1955, decades before the global positioning system, U.S. Air Force Colonel Harry Schaup invented a Santa tracker. Robert Shaw Smith of Arish Theater wrote and directed The Red Telephone, a film Based on that story, he joins us now via Zoom with the lead actor, Maya Efrat. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Lois. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for having us. Rob, what is the significance of the title of this film? So on Christmas Eve 1955, Colonel Harry Schaub was sitting at his desk in the North American Air Defense Command in uh, Colorado Springs. And uh, on his desk were two telephones, one black and one red. The local Sears company had put an advert in the paper for uh, children and families to call in to talk to Santa Claus before he uh, went out on his travels on Christmas Eve. And the number that they put in their advert happened to get them through to this most important red telephone on Colonel Harry Schaub's desk a phone that is usually only used by the Joint uh, joint Chiefs of Staff. This is Shao. What do you have? Uh, I'm sorry, who is this? Shao. Uh, Shao who? Colonel Shao, Colonel Harry Shao, who is this? Amina. This is 6326685. Please identify yourself and your position. I just did. This is NORAD. Colonel Schaub speaking. Please identify. I did. I tell you, it's Amina. 
What is your position, Amina? Uh, I'm in the telephone chair in the hall. Oh, goodness. And imagine the shock when he heard a voice on the other end that was not one of the Joint Chiefs. No. Uh, someone even more important, I would say. It was Kathleen McManus who gave me the idea to uh, imagine uh, this phone conversation. And so what I did, uh, Lois, was to um, imagine a child on Christmas, Christmas Eve trying to get hold of Santa to, f to find out where he is. And uh, so I imagined four different conversations um, that took place, the last of which um, is with actually Colonel Harry Schaub, played by uh, Peter Hardy. And so, and so what I did was uh, I wrote a play for an event at Seven Stages a couple of years ago uh, for their Curious Encounters event. And then during COVID time, we decided that this would be the kind of project that would work as a, as a film. And so we turned it into a film uh, for this Christmas gift. Every, every year, Arish presents a free event, a live event usually, um, to all our friends and patrons and community, um, which we usually hold at uh, Manuel's Tavern. But that's not happening this year. So we decided to make this film um, and, and send it out to all our friends across Atlanta. Oh, it is just lovely. Maya, you play the lead character, Amina, who is quite determined to locate Santa's progress. Hello? Is anybody there? Hello? Who is this? Who is that? It's Amina. Can you answer me a question? Can I what? Do you know where Santa is? Do I what? Know where Santa is. I'm trying to find out where Santa Claus is. And no one will tell me. She's also very inquisitive. Do you see a bit of yourself in Amina? I see my personality in her, but I'm actually Jewish, so I've never looked for Santa. Oh. But... I am kind of inquisitive if somebody ever gets interrupted when they're about to say something important. Uh, I would most definitely go after them and be like, what are you going to say and stuff? <laughs> you would be a very good interviewer or journalist. Thank you. Okay. Well, you are very convincing as an actor. Have you acted before? I've done a few things, including General Mills commercial. I've done two scat films. They were short films. One of them is actually coming out in January. And I did a stage play. And I have actually, um, I was in a movie as a featured extra. It was really fun. Okay, so this is not your first film. No. Oh, wow. Rob, how did you find Maya? So we um, did a global search, uh, Lois, of course. Of course. Uh, <laughs> now, we, we reached out to the uh, Alliance uh, Educational Department, and they put us in touch with a number of people who, who sent in auditions. And um, we had some wonderful auditions. But Maya certainly rose to the top. She was absolutely sparkling. And um, world needs to watch out. <laughs> Maya Efrat is going to take over the world. Oh, yes. Sparkling is the perfect word for Maya's performance. Maya, I have to tell you, I am also Jewish. I did believe in Santa until I was about seven. 
And my parents went along with it. We didn't have a Christmas tree or anything like that, but it, it's kind of a fun fairy tale to believe in. How old are you? I am 11 years old. I turned 11 this December. Well, happy birthday, and I think your career is well established. There's a very sweet scene showing a conversation between Amina and a woman in Lagos, Nigeria. It's Christmas, you know. He should be coming soon. Oh, I see now. You've seen him? No. I have to work today because I don't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> what do you mean? Why not? I have a different guy. Uh, oh. Okay, cool. But I am going to get my guy to find your guy and look after him. So you'll get to see him very soon. Can he do that? Oh, yes. Thank you so much. You are most welcome. What does that part of the story reveal? That's a great question. I, when I was writing and inventing these characters, obviously the character of Colonel Harry Sharp is not an invention. He, uh, he was there that night. He took the call and spun it into the Santa Tracker that we now know of. Um, but when I was creating the other characters as a lead up to the Harry Sharp character, I wanted to go across America. I wanted to go across the world. Um, and in fact, um, it was important to me to um, sort of show that this is a global event. Um, uh, Santa goes around the globe. And uh, while not everyone is a part of that tradition, they can um, certainly enjoy it and participate uh, as spectators, if you like. And uh, I also wanted to show um, a real global connection happen on Christmas Eve between, you know, two continents, uh, two religions. And um, I think the warmth that Iniki Roberts and uh, Maya Efrat have together on screen is is really beautiful. And I'm, I'm so grateful to them for, for portraying that for me. It is especially beautiful. And I, I love the line, I'll get my guy to look after your guy. What do you think that meant, Maya? I was thinking that she was meaning whoever she honors as part of her religion and her traditions. I think she was like, my character definitely thought that she was going to get her Santa. It's a sweet moment of honoring each other's traditions and respecting each other's different beliefs. Colonel Harry Schaup is gruff-sounding at first. Rob, what can you tell us about the real-life Colonel Schaup? Not, not a huge amount. We, um, we, we reached out to the family but never got through to them. Um, but we, we do have, uh, there, there is a, a NPR, a radio article that was put out on NPR that his children participated in. And they certainly gave us a sense of the surprise that he had when he got this call. He was clearly taken aback at first. Um, but 
the actual child of that night actually was upset and he realized that he had to do something to uh, help this child and comfort this child and honor what this child was trying to do. And he and uh, the other younger men working with him uh, quickly responded um, in such a way that uh, that child was reassured that night. And it's, it's a really beautiful story. And he seems to have been quite, quite a, a military figure in the sort of earliest part of that conversation. But he quickly warmed up and realized what was going on and, and the humanity of the moment clearly took over. It's a really wonderful story. It's a marvelous story. I read uh, an article in a journal called The Coloradoan in which his daughter was interviewed. And you may have found that on the internet as well in your research. And explaining her father's horror when that red telephone <laughs> rang, which, you know, 1955, height of the Cold War, could have been a nuclear threat, but how beautifully he rose to the occasion. And I suspect perhaps being a father may have had something to do with it, but above all, the empathy in him kicked in. And what's, what's also lovely, Lois, is that it has, it's transformed now into something that's you know, far greater than we could have ever imagined um, from that night. Thousands of volunteers are now lined up to answer phones, uh, and there is a number that you can call if you are anxious about the progress of Santa on Christmas Eve, and there are volunteers there who will help you find out. It's, it's wonderful. And of course, being the 21st century, you can actually go online and track his progress on the screen. Would you talk about NORAD? NORAD is a, a, a military defense um, establishment that was based in Colorado. Um, and uh, was one of those uh, 24-hour um, establishments that was uh, guarding the country and uh, as still happens, you know, people are stationed day and night um, watching the skies. Um, as you say, during the Cold War, this was a particularly important task that had to be undertaken. NORAD has uh, since, to honor this, this moment, has, has been very much uh, a part of ensuring that uh, children can find out where Santa Claus is um, on Christmas Eve um, ever since. So this is a 60-year project that they've been engaged in, and it continues. Oh, it's just quite marvelous. And I also was delighted to read that the real-life Colonel Schaup started assigning members of his staff to take phone calls because phones were ringing all around, and... Um, my goodness, what Sears touched off just with that one advertisement, one digit off in the paper is quite astonishing. Yeah, it is. Maya, I wanted to ask you if it was strange for you to use a rotary dial telephone. Had you ever seen one before? I have actually never seen one before. At first, it was kind of weird. I didn't understand how to use the phone. If you had handed it me to me and you said, call somebody, I would have been like, what? 
Well, speaking of changes in technology, Rob, is it true you filmed this on an iPhone? So filming in uh, pandemic time, Lois, is not the simplest thing to do. And the great thing about this little project was that because it was phone conversations that we were capturing, um, it meant that we didn't have to gather casts together and big crews together. And, and Arish Theatre is a, a theatre company. We've, we've never made a film before. So this was all a new venture for us. We had a wonderful colleague based in California, William Gilmore, who helped us with phone settings and light settings. And he helped us with file transfers. But, but the, yeah, the, the film was filmed with the actors' iPhones or, or Google phones or Samsungs or, or whatever phones they had. And we had to coordinate our settings so that we were capturing um, in, in similar ways at similar rates and similar settings. It was, uh, it was a, a very new venture. Jo Joanna Daniel, my co-producer and co-director, would be with um, the other actors and I would be with Maya in her house. And, and we had to do this safely um, in, in COVID time. So we were very careful uh, to make sure that uh, uh, all those uh, sort of protocols were followed, yeah. Well, it is just a delight. Maya, do you think this film might have even greater meaning now because of the pandemic? Yes, I think it does, because this was an actual play, and the idea of transforming it into something else is a, a bit bigger, basically proving that you can celebrate your religions with or without going to the mall to sit on someone's lap. Actor Maya Efrat, along with director Rob Shaw-Smith, you can stream Arish Theatre's film The Red Telephone online now. There will be more information on ways to watch the free film at wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. You're probably familiar with the expression of bad hair day. Well, celebrities can't afford to have bad hair days. Tracy Moss is a highly sought-after hairstylist in TV and film. She's mastered the hairstyles of famous celebs, including Gabrielle Union, Regina Hall, Vanessa Hudgens, and those are just a few. And her film credits include Black Panther and Guardians of the Galaxy. Tracy Moss joins us now via Zoom to talk about her new book, 
Styling by Faith, a celebrity TV and film hairstylist's guide to securing a win. Tracy Moss, welcome to City Lights. Hello. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. Well, glad to talk with you. How did you get into hairstyling? Actually, my mom, she thought that I would be a hairstylist when I was a little girl, but I wanted to do the American dream thing. And I went to college, went to grad school, and then end up turning all the way back around and going to hair school. And I went from there. I went to hair school and then I started my career from there. Well, certainly all of your education paid off in other ways. I read that you had a successful salon for eight years called 360 Degree Salon. Why did you want to pivot to work in the entertainment industry? Well, when I first started, being that I went to college and I went to grad school, when I first started doing hair, I knew that I didn't want to just be a hairstylist in the salon. So from the beginning, I had big dreams. I wanted to work on set. I wanted to own a salon. I wanted to be an educator. There were a lot of things that I had on my bucket list that I wanted to do being a hairstylist. So that was just one of the points or one of the highlights of what I wanted to do. And I was at that salon for, well, I co-owned that salon for eight years. So that was a nice run. Very great experience. Oh, I must tell you, Tracy, I never think of hairstylists as just a hairstylist. Essential frontline workers, if you will, essential workers for many of us. Hair is very important to one's self-esteem and how we present ourselves to the world. Yes, it is. It's a very, very important theme. And I realize more and more that more years that I get into it, whether it was in hair school, whether it was in the salon, whether it's on set, it's therapy like when we're doing hair. It's not, we're just not doing hair, but we are actually doing therapy. So it's a very important field. Yeah. Now, when you create looks for Black Panther or Guardians of the Galaxy, are you given strict guidelines of how the hair should look, how the character's hair should look? Yes. Okay, I I was wondering how much creative freedom and leeway do you have? Well, the one thing about being a hairstylist for TV and film and being a hairstylist for such creative movies is you have to come with your foundation. You have to come with the foundation of your craft, of knowing how to do hair or knowing how the, the knowing the foundation of your craft, I would say that. And then once you get there, depending on, it's so many levels, it's tiers that you have to go down to get the, to nail the look of the movie, to nail the look of each character. So you have to go down from the director, then you have producers, and then you have creatives the creative director that's a that's over the whole look and then you have the cost 
costume designer that creates the look and then it gets to hair and makeup. So we're like the lab. Once we get the instructions, once we get the goal of how they want the film to look on the screen, then we use our foundation and use our creative ability to get to it. But it's a lot of steps even before the actor gets in our chair. And then once they get in our chair, we have a look that we are assigned for them. And then we still have to, because sometimes the actor is not, they don't want it or they don't like it or, or it's outside of their realm of how they normally look. So then we have to, you know, play the dosey do kind of <laughs> to, to um, yeah, to make them or make them feel comfortable about the desired look that was already given to us. Ah, so do you work from drawings? Are you handed those by the creatives before the actors get into your chair? Well, no, we have lookbooks. And then when we have production meetings before the actual actors come, we have, you know, they have a, a lookbook or they have not necessarily drawings, but they have pictures on the idea of what they want it to look like. It's very interesting because it's so many different types of movies. You have sci-fi and you have period. Guardian of the Galaxy was sci-fi. And then Black Panther was so much of textured hair. It was a lot of African-American textured hair. So it's so many different elements to being a hairstylist for TV and film. Oh, sure. You mentioned some of the actors not being thrilled with the look that may have been created for their characters. When working with these celebrities on set, do you see a different side to their personalities compared to what's conveyed when they're in the limelight or on screen? I'm asking you, Tracy, can you dish? Can you tell us any interesting stories? Well, um, I do see... I see the raw self. When they come in the, in the trailer, they're coming from home. They're coming from some women. They just had a baby. Or, you know, they have their own personal life. They could have just been in the tabloids. Or, you know, just their, their normal stuff. They don't have on any makeup. There isn't any lights and cameras. So we're coming with, when they come in the trailer, we get their authentic self. So sometimes, you know, you meet the celebrity name that you think you know, and then sometimes you meet someone totally different and you're like, oh my gosh. So <laughs> there, there are, it's, it's totally different when they come in that chair because we get stories or we get, you know, you have a conversation with them and it's not the lights camera action that we see. Then once we get on set, then it's a total different person. Sure. Now, are there any examples of kindness, of warmth from some actors or celebrities that you can share? Yes. You can tell the very confident person. The very confident person comes in the trailer. They sit down. 
They know they have to play a character. So they allow you to do their job. They, they come in hair and whatever the hairstyle, they're like, yes, sure. The guys are like, yeah, sure. If you have to get the haircut, if the women have to get the hair colored, if we have to create that character, they're okay. They go to makeup, they're okay. They go to wardrobe, they're okay. But you can tell the confidence in one, one person to the next. The person that is not totally confident give you so many problems on you know the hair and the makeup they don't like this or this that and the other but I've met some very confident people that are actors or actresses and they say you know you're talking to them you're trying to achieve this particular look and they say go ahead do your job because they know once the cameras roll that's their job so they defer to your professionalism and treat you as a professional. Exactly. Can you tell us who the good ones, the nice ones are? One of the nicest per people that I've worked with was Regina Hall. Oh, I love her work. Regina, what you see is what you get. She is, I work with her. I was her hairstylist on Shaft and she was the nicest individual. And when I speak, I often speak about her because she was just a very kind person. She was very professional and she allowed you to do your job. So that's one of the people. Vanessa Hudgens, she was a nice person. I work with her on Bad Boys. And Gabrielle Union, I work with her on Almost Christmas. So thank, luckily for me, and I'm very thankful that I haven't had too many horror stories. And <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I haven't had too many horror stories. Well, that speaks well. What have been some of the wildest hairstyles you've created on set? Some of the wildest hairstyles I created on set, it had to be from Hunger Games, the capital scene. And there were on set, I don't want to say I was in the beginning of the, my career, but I maybe was in the middle of my career. And there were some of the most amazing hairstylists from LA and Atlanta, like some of the best of the best came in and when I went in that tent and saw all those ladies and those men creating looks and I mean it was just creativity to the fullest and you go in you get your look and you go and you go for it so I would definitely say Hunger Games was the most creative things I've ever seen. So you're really watching the hairstylist or you are working as an artist. I mean, creating those, you could call them special effects, those outrageous appearances, that's an art. Yes, it definitely is an art. And you will get on, when you work on television shows, it's a difference between features. Television shows, you, ha you have your everyday 
common look. You have your mother who's going picking up the kids and maybe going to the games afterwards. So, you know, you have people waking up in the morning. So you have more common look. But when you work on feature films like A Guardian of the Galaxy or Hunger Games or Black Panther or a period film, you're definitely creating avant-garde or you're creating looks. Yeah. As a Black woman and hairstylist, how does your personal experience with Black hair help you create hairstyles for other Black actors? My personal experience as a Black hairstylist, it is it always so, is a win because I've worked with black hair texture ever since a little girl because it's my texture so growing up and you know um in college when I started doing hair that's all I knew was black texture the good thing about me though I'm, I'm originally from Miami Florida and when I was in Miami Florida you have so many different nationalities so I was able to get in into the other national nationalities but when I became a professional hairstylist it was a absolute plus for me because I didn't um fortunately I didn't get into the issues of being on set and not being able to handle um African-American hair or all the different textures oh that's great experience yes have you helped those who might not have as much experience with natural hair Yes, I have had classes. Um, I've also went to beauty schools and talked to beauty schools about, you know, natural hair. And sometimes I'm very, very busy, but I do take the time out to give back, to give back to communities, to give back to little girls or give back to hairstylists um, to instill certain things about being a hairstylist and that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book because I wanted to encourage people hairstylists or other entrepreneurs or other business minds um, I wanted to just pour my experience or give them my tips and my advice on the industry or coming through finding your passion finding your purpose so I really really wanted to give back So that was one of the main reasons why I wrote that book. Well, let's talk a little bit more about it. You've just released this memoir called Styling by Faith. I'm intrigued with the title. Do you address religion or your personal walk with spirituality? Yes, I do. Because Styling by Faith for me, and I came with the up with the title because it was exactly that. I started off one way. I ended up in a whole different area. This wasn't, this is something that I desired, but this wasn't something like I knew the roadmap to. So each step of the way, I knew that it was faith that got me from one level to the next level. And I give an example in the book which says you can't drive from Miami, Florida to California, just a straight shot. You have to stop and get gas or you have to stop and maybe rest. You have to stop. So it's along the way you have your, your goods, your bads, your high lows and your, you know, your highs and your lows along the way. But I know that it was 
strictly by the faith of God that got me to where I am today. What advice would you give young hairstylists who want to break into the entertainment industry? The advice that I would give young hairstylists, take your time. Learn your foundation. If you, when you go to beauty school, learn what they tell you because once you get in television and film, you're going to have to do those old lady roller sets that you didn't want to do. You're gonna, <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to do those finger waves that you think that's not in style now if you get a period 1940s. Um, film. You're going to have to do, I just got off the film Aretha, Genius Aretha, and it's a TV show. And um, it's starring Cynthia Erivo. And it was about the life of Aretha Franklin. And we had to do 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. So any and everything that I learned in hair school, I had to use it. So my advice would be learn what you can learn. Everything that you learn in school, you're going to need. Take your time, surround yourself around like-minded people and don't quit. Wonderful advice. Tracy, I have so enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thank you. And when I watch that Aretha movie, I can't wait to see it. I will take special note of all your hair creations. Oh, thank you so much. I was a key hairstylist on that um, TV show, and it's going to be on National Geographic, and it was an amazing experience. And thank you so much also for having me today. It was a pleasure, absolute pleasure. Celebrity hairstylist Tracy Moss. Her new book Styling by Faith, a celebrity TV and film hairstylist's guide to securing a win, is out now. Whenever Elgin played, people stopped what they were doing and watched. That refrain appears throughout the new young adult book, Above the Rim, How Elgin Baylor Changed Basketball. Jen Bryant is the author of the book. The illustrations are by Frank Morrison. They're with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. Thank you. Given his role in sports, as well as his role in 20th century American history, it's surprising that the name and story of Elgin Baylor aren't better known. How did this book come about? Well, you're right about that. Given his major contribution, both on and off the court, it is surprising. And really, over the course of my uh, writing career, which is now going on three decades, that's really become my mission, is to find underknown, under-celebrated, individuals who have contributed in some large way to their field. I've done artists and I've done inventors. 
and musicians and poets, but Elton Baylor is the first athlete. And for me, Lois, really, I don't have a, a, a hard and fast line between art and athletics. I've always been interested in the creative artistic side of sports, uh, both as a participant and as a fan. So I've always been on the lookout for individuals who, you know, who have changed the aesthetic of their sport. And uh, about seven years ago, I was reading a biography of Julius Irving, who, if you'll know, is a, um, a 76ers player, former 76ers player. And um, in it, he recounted a time when he was a young man and had a serious knee injury and was in a hip to ankle cast and could do nothing but lay on the couch and watch television. And one day he sees Elgin Baylor playing and it something, it gives him an, an epiphany really. And he begins to mentally rehearse how he will one day play the game of basketball based on the modeling that he sees before him in Elgin Baylor, the, this above the rim type of, of play. And he delights in the artistry and the creativity. And so when I'm reading that as a biographer, I'm thinking, hmm, that's interesting. I you know, I know a little bit about Elgin Baylor. Let me poke around a little bit more. So I listened to audio recordings. I watched a lot of videotape, um, read books, magazines, older sports magazines and just built up a mountain of information about his early life. And then of course his, his action in 1959 when he uh, boycotted the game in Charleston, West Virginia to protest uh, racial discrimination. So it came along slowly as most of these things do, but it was a wonderful a story that really needed to be told for young people. Would you talk about how you use the story of Elgin Baylor's life to correspond with milestones in the civil rights movement? Sure. I mean, his action uh, in, on January 16th, 1959, um, where his uh, Minneapolis Lakers, he was, he was the first first year player. He was a rookie NBA player. And in those days, the NBA only had eight teams. And it was, you know, fascinating to imagine the kind of, of travel and lives that they, they had much, much different than today. And they didn't really have a big fan base. But Elgin was really the star of the team. But he was turned away at uh, the hotel when they got to uh, West Virginia and also turned away at restaurants. And at that was enough. He said, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, they can't just let me out of a cage like an animal to play the game and not treat me like a human being the rest of the time. And this was, it was important in the book as I'm writing the text to make sure that it was clear that other things that off the court outside of athletics, Rosa Parks, the uh, Wichita, Kansas food counter uh, sit-ins and protests, the desegregation of schools in the South. It's important to the young people know the context of what was happening in, in at the same time and that this you know, this was part of a, a larger movement of athletes and non-athletes, um, but he was really the first pro athlete to stage a boycott. So all the modern day, you know, protests and boycotts and kneeling at games that you see today really echoes back to this, to Elgin Baylor sitting out the game in West Virginia. Yeah. Frank, 
Your dedication in the book reads, to all the children who love basketball as much as I love painting, your illustrations are wonderful. And I love the picture where Elgin is airborne. And part of the text reads, in one smooth move like a plane taking off, he would leap higher and higher and higher as if pulled by some invisible wire. Would you describe the picture you created for that? Oh, wow. First, thanks for having me. Uh, really enjoy your programming. Um, Thank you. The picture, <laughs> great. The page you're describing, it's, it's, it's what we're talking about. Uh, the pri we have to go back to the prior page. And that is a page of the, a group of young individuals coming together and they're debating. So I would call this the great debate. And in this debate, they're going back and forth about bragging about who's better and who's this and who can do that and who can do this. And then out of the blue, if you look further back, you peer back, you see Elgin. He's doing a little crossover and coming up, coming up approaching this, this group of, of braggers and, and trash talkers. You know, you have to tr talk trash. And, and <laughs> you just have to. And so instead of participating, he proves them all wrong. He goes over everyone. He goes over the gossip. He goes over the naysayers. And he flies through the air. And he does this wonderful finger roll that he just drops off gently into the hoop. And you have the background. You have the sun at his back. And it's a silhouette. And he's just coming. You have a little bit of that basketball hoop in the background. And he's just soaring above everyone. And that's just making sure that he, and I believe this picture shows that he was different then. Even on the court, you would have seen it. He may not have participated in all that all that back and forth John. Of course, you're going to do it while you're on the court. But off the court, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It's you prove who you are on the court. And I think that's what this picture shows. Throughout the book, we see examples of Elgin Baylor's quiet dignity. Was he as humble in real life? Yes, I think he was and is. Yes, he did. Uh, he did not. He liked to have his play speak for him. And it wasn't that he couldn't be chatty. I mean, if you, uh, you know, read the interviews with his uh, fellow players when they were traveling and whatnot, he was, he was very talkative and a storyteller. But, you know, on, on the court, he preferred to let his play speak for him. And he really eschewed any sort of anyone making a big deal about how he could play and what he could do. I mean, even when you watch the film reels, when he's being interviewed after he retired and they, you know, they have, they're interviewing Elgin Baylor as he's watching his own film reels and they're saying, wow, look, look at what you could do. He will just say, well, you know, there were probably other people who could do these things, but I don't know, you know, I just, that, that's just what came to me at the time. So he's, he's, he's very, uh, as we say in the book, it was, it felt spontaneous to him. And he, uh, he was just a wonderful player, a wonderful artist on the court. And I do think he uh, continues to be as humble to this day as he ever was back then. He is 86 years old now. Is he aware that you wrote this book? We have sent it to him, yes. <laughs> 
Oh, I hope you get a response. I hope so, too. Frank, I was hoping you would talk about the pictures you created of Rosa Parks and the group at the lunch counter sitting and being harassed as they quietly protested. Well, I just feel when I do have opportunities to paint our civil rights heroes, really, I just feel blessed. And I wanted to do the best I can, particularly on these images, because I hold them with high respect. Particularly with Rosa, I wanted to show she did get in good trouble, as John would say. And so as I painted her, she didn't look uh, apologetic for what happened. She looks stern. She yes, it is. A, it's a very distinct portrayal of her. It almost brought to mind Confucius or some Chinese philosopher. You know, I guess her nonviolent protest. Yes, yes, yes. And, and 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 what I also did is I love to play whenever I can pull that urban restoration or that mannerism into it, I use spray paint and oil on this canvas. And that way I can pull in and draw a lot of the, uh, the current, show how important it is now, bring the contemporary and show the past. So I juxtapose both of those together for this painting. Um, and then the counter, oh gosh, the black and white. So many times, Growing up, I watched uh, Eyes on the Prize, and you know, it, it, it's you know, I, for some reason, I just fell, fell in love with history then. Seeing what my mother and grandmother and grandfathers went through to have us to for me to be here today, and moving now, I live in the south, and I live actually, my house is on an old plantation that they turned into a subdivision. When I do get a, a chance to look at, to, to go back and paint once again, history, I just, I, I show that this, you know, she's being heckled and she's being, you know, even with the military, they're looking straight ahead as if it's nothing can happen, nothing, they can't stop them. They're just there to stop them from violent, being violent, but not mental violence that's going on. They can still juror and, and talk all this stuff to her. But then I have, what is it all about? And it's about books. It's about education. And so I highlighted that one part uh, of the book, Red. And that's how the importance of that fire of education and understanding that we get from, especially looking back and seeing how it was. That we still have a long way to go, but we can say how it was. And then we use our history to move forward. The picture with Elgin Baylor sitting out the game where he is seated on the bench with his teammates. And again, that quiet dignity. He's wearing a white shirt, a necktie, like so many of the other peaceful protesters, impeccably dressed for the occasion. And Jen, you write, sometimes you have to sit down to stand up. Was that a recurring theme for Mr. Baylor? 
this incident in West Virginia, and first of all, it's so funny that you should say that because right before we got on this call, I was really staring at that, at that exact page and just marveling at Frank's work there, capturing that, that moment in, I love it. But to get back to your question, he had uh, been turned away before when they had played in, in Carolina and he had said to himself and to another teammate, you know, if this happens again, I'm going to do something. And uh, so when they got to West Virginia, he was turned away at the hotel. The whole team then went to a hotel where everyone was welcome. And then he was turned away at restaurants and he had to eat in his room. And that uh, player that's pictured sitting next to him, Hot Rod Hunley, the white player, they were, they were good friends. And Rod had come to him that night because Rod Hundley was a West Virginia native. This was his home court here. He was from this area. He, all his family was there. He told his friends to come. He was very excited that they would get to see him, but also Elgin Baylor who was the star of the team. And when he saw that Elgin wasn't dressing, he tried to convince him to play. And Elgin said, Rod, I'm a human being. I'm not an animal let out for the show. I want to be treated like a human being. And Rod said, you know what? You're right. Don't play. And um, so, you know, that whole moment then has to be as a picture book author. It's really like writing poetry. You have to condense, condense, condense and try and capture a lot of information in a way that is effective emotionally for young readers. So sitting down to stand up is a phrase that I actually checked with the Library of Congress on uh, the origins. It's been used several times. There's a footnote in the back about it, but peaceful protesting sitting down has been used across cultures. And it's just a wonderful paradox, a wonderful verbal play. You know, it's sitting down is really standing up. And I just felt that that epitomized his quiet protest uh, that ended up being very, very effective. Author Jennifer Bryant and illustrator Frank Morrison speaking about their book Above the Rim, How Elgin Baylor Changed Basketball. It's recommended for middle school age readers and above. I loved reading it. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, our guest will be Atlanta Symphony Music Director Robert Spano. He'll tell us about the ASO spring season of concerts to be streamed beginning in January. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'm 25 followers away from the next round number, so I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.